Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22. I'm going to call this section of scripture, Jews and Gentiles, One in Christ. It's related to our context, which is verses 1 through 10, in which Paul sort of dissed the law. Not really, he, the law was holy and good, but he, he dissed the law as a means of salvation. And this section is related to that because it was the law that was creating a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, and so we're saved by faith, not by the law. And by doing that, we break down the law of partition, the wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles. So that's our context, and this is our theme. And so we start at Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Paul says this, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ." Now, the therefore at verse 11, therefore remember, you Gentiles remember, you remember that you were separate from Christ. Why? Because you were dead in your sins. Verses 1 through 4 of this chapter, Paul says you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So remember, because of that death, you are separate from Christ. Now, Paul calls them, you the Gentiles in the flesh. The implication is that in the spirit of Christ, Gentiles are no longer Gentiles. In the flesh, they're Gentiles, but in the spirit, they're sons of Christ. They're adopted brothers of, adopted sons of God and brothers of Christ. And so that implies very strongly that our ethnic status and physical, material, superficial things don't matter in the body of Christ. And the superficial things would include whether you're circumcised or not, because that's done in the flesh. That's not a spiritual thing. The fact that the Jews were calling themselves the circumcision and the Gentiles the uncircumcision shows that Jews were making fleshly distinctions, whereas the real distinctions are spiritual. Are you saved or you're not saved? The fact that the Jews had separate names for themselves, the circumcision, and for the Gentile, the uncircumcision, showed that they were proud of their status. And in, as the NIV Study Bible says, and as a matter of fact, as John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, uncircumcision was a term of reproach. So they were really looking down on the Gentiles. They're not just dividing them up and saying, well, you're different, we're different, we're separate but equal. No, he's saying, you are dogs. You are uncircumcised. A, it was a term of reproach. Now, Paul says that the Gentiles were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. In verse 12, excluded. Here's a quote relevant to that from John Gill. Quote, The Gentiles might not dwell among them, nor have any dealings with them in things civil, unless they conformed to certain laws. Nor might the Jews go into any, nor eat or converse with any that were uncircumcised. So great an alienation and distance were there between these two people. Now, Gill quotes a Jewish rabbi to this effect, it says, quote, He that dwells without the land of Israel is like one who has no God. So the Jews and the Gentiles, there was a big distinction between the two, and that wall of partition, that distinction was upheld by rabbinic teaching over the decades and centuries. Paul says the Gentiles were excluded or strangers to the covenants of promise. What covenants of promise is he talking about? 
Well, first of all, let's notice that the covenants of promise are a positive thing, not a negative thing. He's emphasizing that the Gentiles didn't get to participate in those positive things, and therefore it was a negative thing for the Gentiles. Now, we often think of Old Testament laws as restrictive and negative, but no. The promise, which came before the law, is full of good things. So getting rid of the Old Testament not only got rid of the Mosaic laws and all the, the pharisaical additions added thereupon, it also got rid of these great promises. And what are those promises? They're the ones that are illustrated in Genesis, the ones that were made to Abraham and his descendants. I always like to summarize them this way. Land, offspring, and blessings, L-O-B. All of these three promises were fulfilled when the Gentiles inherited the promises. But they inherited the promises not by being circumcised, not physically by being descendants of Abraham. They, Those promises to the Gentiles through Abraham were fulfilled spiritually by the Gentiles. And let me show you how the land promise. Abraham was promised a land. I'm not going to give you the Old Testament sites. They're very standard. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. You can read all that. But let's show how they're fulfilled in the Gentiles. Hebrews 4, 3. This is the land promise. For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. And the rest, of course, that they were not to enter into was the land where they would find rest. So the author of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament, says they will not enter into enter my rest, even though his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. So there, the entering in the land is said to come by believing, for we who have believed enter the rest. That's how we get the security of the promised land. How about the offspring blessing? That was fulfilled when Gentiles became the seed of Abraham, and Gentiles can call Abraham Father Abraham. Acts 3.25-26 makes this explicit, quote, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, And all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. All the families of the earth, that's the Gentiles, not just the Jews, and they're going to be blessed. There's, well, that's the third uh, the third promise of Abraham was blessing. Right now I'm focusing on the offspring, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring, your seed, in other words, your descendants, as some translations have it. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. All right, so the offspring promise is fulfilled in Acts 3.25. Is, well, it's fulfilled when the, G, when the Gentiles become the seed of Abraham. You can also read about Father Abraham in Galatians. I forgot the chapter, but in Romans chapter 4, Abraham is the father of those who believe, all of us who believe. So there's the fulfillment of the offspring promise to Abraham. And the third promise was blessings to the nation. When Gentiles all over the world received the blessings of God, we see that in Galatians 3, 8 through 9. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So Abraham got a promise, and that's a gospel promise, because the gospel was proclaimed before the New Testament and the Old Testament. In the times of Abraham, all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, Paul continues in Galatians 3.9, Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, who had faith. And that includes Gentiles, folks that have faith, not just the Jews. So you see, the Gentiles were alienated from all these promises, but in Christ, those promises are spiritually fulfilled. And so therefore, they are no longer alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, because now they are in the new Israel, the church. Now they're no longer strangers to the covenants of promise, because those covenants have been fulfilled in the Gentiles. They had no hope with God when they were without God in the world, Paul says in Ephesians 2.12. But now they do have hope, and now they do have God in the world. 
Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, that's the Gentiles, Paul's still calling you, he's referring to you Gentiles, but now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, far off from the promises, now they've been brought near to the promises by the blood of Christ by being brought into the church. Now let me go on a little tangent here. People are always talking about the land of Israel, the promise to Abraham. Folks, that promise was already fulfilled. Genesis 15:18. this is the promise. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. He was Abram back then. He later became Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, there are so many of a certain eschatological persuasions who say that refers to, that is to be physically fulfilled in the future in a nation of Israel. But, Folks, it's already been fulfilled. Joshua 1, 2 through 6. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads I have given to you, just, just as I spoke to Moses from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea, that's the Mediterranean, toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. So... Joshua is promised land from the great from the Euphrates in the north and the northeast to the west to the Mediterranean. Verse five of Joshua one: No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. I will never fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. So God promises Joshua that the promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled in Joshua, because Joshua is going to give the people. The possession of the land. Joshua 21, verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel. That was at the first of Joshua. God says, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give the land to the people through you, Joshua. And now in Joshua 21, 43, he has given it to Joshua. Uh, given it to the people through Joshua. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, to Abraham. And they possessed it and lived in it. Well, I mean, what could be clearer? The land promise was fulfilled in the Old Testament. Is it going to be fulfilled again? Well, if you believe in the double fulfillment theory, which I don't, I guess you can always postulate that, but then you can postulate a triple fulfillment, a quadruple fulfillment, go on and on and on. Second Samuel 8, 3, Then David defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. That's a little kingdom right to the north, right between in the anti-Lebanon and Lebanon range right there, north of uh, Lake Hula, up there in the north of Israel. David defeated Hadadezer as he went to restore his rule at the river, and David kept right on going past that area to the Euphrates River where it curls over into, from Syria. So David had the land. Joshua had the land. David had the land. Second Chronicles 9.26, he, that's referring to Solomon, was the ruler over all the kings from the Euphrates River, even to the land of the Philistines, and as, that's to the west on the Mediterranean coast, and as far as the border of Egypt, that's probably the Wadi El Arish, which separated Israel from Egypt. So Solomon had possession of all the land. So we've got Joshua had it. We've got David had all the land. We've got Solomon had all the land. It was fulfilled in the Old Testament. So it just bothers me that people are always talking about that present-day political entity of Israel is fulfilling the promises. No, it was already fulfilled in the time of Abraham. The promises are fulfilled spiritually now in Abraham. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love that Jewish nation over there. I actually love that nation, of Jew the Jewish nation over there, but not for theological reasons for political and cultural and ethnic reasons, and also because, hey, they were the ones that had the oracles of God at first. And so, yeah, I believe that God, that the Jews were God's chosen people. But folks, the land promise has been fulfilled. So let's don't go looking for the what happens in Israel as a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. Let's look at, or the Old Testament promises, I'm sorry. Let's look at how 
God has gloriously fulfilled those promises in the Gentiles. That's hardly ever emphasized, even though the Scripture emphasizes it strongly. Now, besides those direct promises to Abraham that the Gentiles are now privy to, how about the Messiah? The Messiah was promised directly in the Old Testament, of course. The Gentiles had no part in that. Unto us a child is given. Well, now the Gentiles can say, unto us a child is given. So they had that promise, too, the promise of the Messiah. Now that they believe in Christ. Ephesians two fourteen through 16. For he himself is our peace who made both groups, that's the Jews and the Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. The, that barrier is the law, the Mosaic law. Verse 15, Ephesians 2. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity. What's the enmity between the Jew and the Gentile? Which is the law of commandments, the law. Which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. The cross puts to death the enmity, which is the law. The cross puts to death the law. It's over with, folks. Saranara. Now, the dividing wall, of course, is the law, as the context clearly says, but Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that maybe there was a physical reference in addition to the metaphorical reference to a wall because there was a, quote, there was a balustrade of stone which separated the court of the Gentiles from the holy place, which it was death for a Gentile to pass. So maybe Paul was referring to that, that stone wall. I think it was a low balustrade that you had to step over into the court of the Gentile and to get into the court of the Jews. And then, of course, the penalty for that was death. Because there was enmity between Jew and Gentile. That's gone now in, in the cross, in the, new, in the church. Abolishing, how did the wall get torn down? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity. In his flesh, that's in Jesus' flesh when he died on the cross, that tore down the, the law, and that by tearing down the law, by abolishing the law, that abolished the enmity. Now, of course, when we say abolishing the law, we would think that meant the whole law. The Old Testament Mosaic Law is totally abolished through Christians. By it, the cross, having put to death the enmity, through the cross, by it, the cross, having put to death the enmity, and the enmity is the law, so having put to death the law, which causes the enmity, that's it. It's over. You would think that would be simple, but oh no. We have a bunch of Reformed Covenant theologians who say that only the civil and ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law were abolished, such as the Sabbath, the sacrifices, the criminal laws of restitution, etc. But the moral law remains. Here's an NIV study Bible quote reflecting that erroneous, in my humble opinion, Reformed Covenant the theological position. Quote, since Matthew 5.17 and Romans 3.31 teach that God's moral standard expressed in the Old Testament law is not changed by the coming of Christ. Really? What is abolished here is probably the effect of the specific commandments and regulations in separating Jews from Gentiles. Folks, that, ain't, that, that just can't be. Well, let's look and see what the NIV Study Bible, which that note was obviously written by a covenant theologian. This, he's, the first verse, the first passage which says that the Old Testament law is not changed by the coming of Christ. Let's read that. This is a kind of a classic verse. Matthew 5, 17 through 19, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And everybody says, See there? The law's not changed. It wasn't put to death uh, on the cross when Jesus died, despite the verses that I just read, which says it was put to death. But oh no, Jesus says here that the law of the prophets is, is not abolished, but it's fulfilled. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. See there? 
the law's not done away with. So we must have, we got to slice the law up into three parts. And in order to satisfy Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, we've got to say that those parts of the law were abolished by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Those parts of the law abolished the enmity, but the other part, the moral third part, that goes on forever because of Matthew 5, 17 and 19, which says that not one stroke of letter shall pass from the law. But does it really say that in Matthew 5, 17 through 19? It says until all is accomplished. Then it leaves open the possibility that the law shall pass away when all is accomplished. And what would that be? The death of Christ on the cross. Remember, he says it is finished. So when that happens, of course, the law is done away with on the cross, just like Paul says in, in Ephesians 2 in our passage here, verses 14 through 16. That's when the law is going to be done with. So to quote Matthew 5, 17 and 19 and say that the law is not abolished, that ain't going to fly. When Jesus was speaking, when he spoke that, yeah, the law was still in effect then. But after the cross, when Paul is speaking, the law has been done away with. But Jesus was speaking before the cross, so the law had not been done away with then. Now, let's look at this phrase, until heaven and earth pass away. That sounds like the end of time. Oh, so the law is not going to pass away until the end of time. Not when Jesus dies on the cross when the law passes away, but it's not going to pass away until the end of time. Well, there's several ways to handle that. David Chilton, the Orthodox Preterist, at least he was Orthodox Preterist when he wrote the book I used, says that this is a rabbinic saying, meaning the end of the Jewish order. The heaven and earth pass away is talking about when the Jewish rabbinical Old Testament order passes away. I'm taking his word on that. I haven't actually researched it. And a lot of New Covenant, in fact, no New Covenant people that I've seen actually use that argument. And I think it's because Chilton was a Reconstructionist, which, of course, is poison to New Covenant theologians. So that's probably why they don't use him. But I still think it's perfectly reasonable, although I haven't researched it. Most New Covenant theologians say that till heaven and earth pass away, it's just a hyperbolic expression. It's not to be taken literally. And if you take it literally... Of course, New Covenant theologians have a problem because then the law hangs around to the end of the world, and New Covenant theologians say it was abolished at the cross. So that's a problem for them. But hey, it's also a problem for the Covenant Reformed people too, the Covenant theology people, because this passage says every jot and tittle or every letter and stroke shall last until heaven and pass away. Every jot and tittle, that includes judicial and ceremonial aspects of the law. It just it doesn't say just the moral law will last until heaven and earth pass away. It says the whole law, every stroke, every little dot, every little speck of the law is going to last. So how does that, how do you handle that? Reformed covenant theologians, when you say that the moral law will not pass away until heaven and earth pass away, it doesn't say the moral law. It says every jot and tittle of the law will last until heaven and earth pass away. So we need to take that hyper hyperbolically, he's just saying it ain't going to happen. The law's going to be here until I die at the cross, until all is accomplished. The reason he was saying that, of course, is because his enemies, the Pharisees, were saying he's against Moses. He's trying to tear down Moses. And Jesus said, no, I'm not. That's not going to happen until later. The other verse that covenant theological people, reform-type people, like the NIV Study Bible note here, says that shows that the Old Testament law never changes, is not passed away at the cross when Jesus put to death the enmity between the Jew and the Gentile by by abolishing the enmity, by abolishing the law at the cross. What about Romans 3.31, they say? Paul says this, Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. And so they're saying, see, Paul is saying the law is still in effect. Well, there's a thousand other verses you can quote where Paul says the law is still not in, is not in effect. So how do we handle this? Well, Paul, in fact, has spent much of Romans 3 in the previous verses in, in Romans 3 before verse 31 saying the law was abolished. 
So then he says, but we establish the law. Well, what does Paul mean here? He means that faith establishes the purpose of the law of Moses. The purpose of the law of Moses was to show that people were sinners. They needed for justification apart from law because we know that the law does not produce righteousness. It produces sin. It arouses sin, as Paul says in Romans 7. So the law can only condemn. It cannot justify. And so we establish the law by showing that, hey, we're all sinners. When we believe in God, we confess we're sinners. We need God. That's what the law does. We don't nullify the law's true purpose in the lives of unconvinced Jews. All right, enough of that little theological rabbit trail. The law has been abolished here. It's abolished. The enmity is abolished. Verse 15, Ephesians 2. Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles are now one new man. No fighting between the two. Peace. 16, we are reconciled. Verse 16, Ephesians 2, we are reconciled both in one body to God through the cross. Why? Because the cross put to death the enmity. What's the enmity? It's the law. How do we know the enmity is the law? Because in verse 15, Ephesians 2, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, comma, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Paul explicitly says the enmity between Jew and Gentile comes because of the law. And then he explicitly says in verse 16, that enmity is put to death through the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he put to death the law which was causing enmity between Jew and Gentile. What could be clearer? It's covenant theologians who make these clear passages fuzzy and murky confused me for decades of my Christian life. So I'm a little bit ticked off about it. Not really, but just a little. Now when Paul says that the enmity is abolished and we are reconciled, Jews and Gentiles are reconciled in one body, what is that body? Well, I've always assumed that that means the body of believers. And I think that's what it is means. It does mean. But then I've been studying Bible has another option, the body of Christ offered on the cross. Through that one body on the cross, we were made one body. I don't think so. It's logically possible. But I don't really think so. We go now to verses 17 and 18 in Ephesians 2. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. So verse 17 is a quotation from Isaiah, which I'll read you in a minute. Verse 18, for through him we both have our access and one spirit to the Father. And he came and preached peace that he and Isaiah was God. And he, of course, is Jesus in the New Testament. This is not in Jesus' earthly ministry because he didn't preach to Gentiles mainly. He mainly preached to Jews. But after the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, his apostles went to the whole world. And so they're preaching through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus, preaching to the Gentiles as well as Jews. So Isaiah mentions God the Father. Paul fulfills this in the church through the apostles of Jesus, the Son, and through the Holy Spirit, that's how the Gentiles were preached to. He says he came and preached peace to you. The you, again, is referring to the Gentiles because he's mainly writing to Gentiles at Ephesus. Ephesians 2.11 says this. I've already quoted this verse. I'll quote it again to you. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. You were Gentiles in the flesh. So that's who he's talking to. Jesus came. He referring to Jesus now in the New Testament, came and preached peace to you Gentiles who were far away. Why were they far away? Because they were strangers to the covenants of promise. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Let's read the quote from Isaiah 57:19, Creating the praise of, it, of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far and to whom, him who is near, says the Lord, I will heal him. Peace to That means peace between Jew and Gentile and peace between Gentile and God. Peace to him who is far, that's the Gentiles, and to him who is near, that's the Jews. They're near to the covenant promises. 
Now here's a little side note here. Verse 18 shows the Trinity. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. The both is means Jews and Gentiles. Through him, that's through Jesus, we have our access in one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit to the Father, God the Father. So there's the him is the second person, the spirit is the third person, and the Father is the first person, all mentioned in verse 18. This is one of those many Trinitarian verses that convinced the early church that there was a Trinity and that Arianism subordinationism or modalism, the two heresies competing with the Trinity at the time in the first centuries of the early church were nonsense because the scripture clearly says, clearly preaches the Trinity, one God in three persons. All right, so through Jesus in the Holy Spirit, we have access to the Father. What does it mean to have access? Well, it means you can get in. Here's This idea of access to God is kind of interesting because, of course, we don't have access to God normally because we're pitiful, sinful human beings. Even if we we're perfect, we're weak little ants compared to God, but let's see what the scripture says about our access to the Father. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Hey, so you can come to the Father. You have access to him. Hebrews 10, 19, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, the holy place, of course, is the, in the Old Testament temple was the 10 by 20 cubit area where the lampstand was and the showbread was. And, of course, all that's symbolic of heaven. We have confidence to enter heaven by the blood of Jesus, to enter into, we can go see God, in other words, by the blood of Jesus, because it takes away our sins, which takes away our disqualifications, so that we can enter into God's presence. Ephesians 3.12, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. We can boldly walk in. We don't have to walk in with our tail between our legs and our heads hanging and kowtowing on the, on the floor and, and backing up crawling backwards like a worm we have boldness we can boldly walk into god's throne room because he cares for us we're his children romans 5 2 through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith you need to get to see the president in the white house you got to have an introduction you got to have somebody that says you have the right to get in here well we've obtained that same introduction into the grace in which we stand in fact kgv has introduction as access translates it as access through whom we also have obtained our access by faith into this grace by which we stand so having access to grace is the same thing as having access to God the Father. Paul mentions at the end in verse 18, for through him we both have our access in one spirit. Why does he mention the one spirit? Because he's trying to contrast that with the two ethnic groups, the two nationalities that are fighting each other in the body of Christ, and they ought not to be fighting anymore. He mentions one body in verse 16. Let me go back and get that. He says in verse 16, he, he, the subject being he, he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, in one body to God. So the Jew and Gentile are reconciled in one body. And in verse 18, we both have our access, both Jew and Gentile have our access in one spirit to the Father. So we got, we've got one body and we've got one spirit. Now this one spirit is an idea that's all through the writings of Paul. Here's 1 Corinthians 12:13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks. Again, he's still concerned about that horrible division that existed in the early church. That was probably one of the biggest problems the early church had, is getting Jew and Gentile together. Whether slaves are free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. So the basic idea here is if there's one spirit, there shouldn't be two nationalities of the church. There's one spirit, there's one body, not two bodies. 
Ephesians 2, 19-22, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Again, talking about the Gentiles. So then you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And here, saints is Jewish saints. It's usually not Jewish saints. It's usually all saints. But here in the context, it's Jewish saints. You are fellow citizens with the Jewish saints and are of God's household. So we're in the, so the Gentiles are in the Jews' country. They're fellow citizens. And they're in the God's household. They're in the Jews' family. And they're in the Jews' house, as he says in verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we're in the same temple, the same house, the same country. We're one. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So there's a couple of metaphors in here. There's the household metaphor. There's a country metaphor, and then there's the temple metaphor, all of which metaphors emphasize unity. All right, starting in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers, so then why? Because in one body you've been reconciled to God on the cross, as we just mentioned in verse 16, and because through one spirit we have confident access to the Father, as we just said in verse 18. So as a result of all that wonderful stuff, verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, because you're one with Jews, you're in the new Israel the household of God, the church with the Jews. Now, in verse 19, Paul says that you Gentiles are of God's household, along with the Jewish saints. You're both the members of God's household. Now, it's an interesting fact here that God's household, the house of God, is said to belong to all three persons of the Trinity. We can look in Ephesians 2.20 and read this. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So there's the cornerstone of the house. Ephesians 2.22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the Spirit is building the living stones together into a temple, into the house. So God owns the house. Jesus is the cornerstone of the house. And the Holy Spirit is doing the building of the house, if you want to look at it that way. Verse 19 says, you are being built together into God's house, into a dwelling of God. That's God's house. So he owns the house. Verse 20 of Ephesians 2 that says that Jesus himself is the cornerstone of the house. And then the Holy Spirit in verse 22 is said to be building the stones together into a, into a house. So God owns the house. Jesus is the cornerstone of the house. And the Holy Spirit's doing the building. That's a pretty good metaphor. Now, you know, I said there was several metaphors. I need, I need to correct that. The household is really the temple because the temple is where God lives and where the people of God lives. It's not really talking about a family household. So let me correct that. In verse 20... Paul of Ephesians 2, Paul says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Note it's not the foundations of the apostles and prophets. There's one foundation. And if apostles and prophets means apostles of the New Testament and prophets in the Old Testament, that would emphasize the unity of Jew and Gentile. However, there's a dispute as to whether that foundation of apostles and prophets refers to Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles. That idea is prevalent in the New Testament, that's talking about apostles in the New Testament and prophets in the Old Testament, especially in Revelation 21, verse 14. And the wall of the city, that's the New Jerusalem, standing for the New Covenant people of God, the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So there's your foundation of the New Covenant church the 12 apostles, okay? and But then, what about the prophets, the Old Testament? Well, Revelation 21, 12, it, the New Jerusalem, again, standing for the church, had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. 
Well, it doesn't say prophets, but it says 12 tribes. So there's the idea of the Old and the New Testaments coming together in the New Covenant Church, the New Jerusalem. So I tend to think that's what Paul meant because the context is bringing together Jew and Greek into one. And so we got apostles and prophets. That sort of fits that theme, doesn't it? Apostles of the New, the prophets of the Old Testament coming together into one building, one foundation for the new building of the church. The NIV Study Bible does not agree with me on that. It says it means the New Testament prophets. The argument goes like this. The New Testament church was founded upon the works of apostles and prophets. For example, in Acts 13, 1 through 3, we read this. Now, they were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon. And blah, 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 blah. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that were there, prophets and teachers. So they are your prophets. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, it's Barnabas and Saul in verse 2 to go out, and those were apostles. They're called apostles later. Later, So we got prophets and apostles are gathered together in Antioch before the first missionary journey. So the church is started on the foundation of apostles and prophets, and that's perfectly reasonable. However, I think the context is overwhelmingly concerned with Jews and Gentiles and the unity created by the abolishment of the enmity of the law, and so that they're now one, and they're one on one foundation, the foundation being partially Jewish and partially Christian, but now we build a new building, which is one doesn't make distinctions. Now, in verse 20, we read that Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone of this temple, this new building. He's the cornerstone. This is a quotation from Isaiah 28:16. Therefore says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Now, the cornerstone means the same thing as a foundation stone. In fact, I don't have this in my notes, so I'm going from memory, but I've read, and I'm pretty sure of this, that foundation stone and cornerstone are translations of the same Greek word. And some translations were translated one way, and some translations were translated in another way in different contexts. But let's read what Adam Clark says, quote, the foundation stone is, quote, the chief angle or foundation cornerstone, the connecting medium by which both Jews and Gentiles were united in the same building. Elsewhere, Jesus Christ is termed the foundation stone. Behold, I lay in, in Zion a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone. But the meaning is the same in all the places where these terms, foundation and cornerstone, occur. So that's what I was just saying, that the words mean the same thing. For in laying the foundation of a building, a large stone is generally placed at one of the angles or corners. So then you have a foundation stone, which is also a cornerstone. Going back to Clark which serves to form a part of the two walls which meet in that angle. When, therefore, the apostle says that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, it means such a foundation stone as that above mentioned. All right, so Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation stone. He holds Jew and Gentile together, makes the walls sturdy, so the two walls don't start shaking and wobbling. Put that cornerstone in the foundation there. The two walls are joined to that cornerstone, and they don't shake. They're solid. Now, the Jew and the Gentile are said to be built together into one building in whom you also, you Gentiles, are being built together, together with the Jews, into a dwelling of God in the Spirit, into a temple of God in the Spirit. This idea of a building, the church being a building, is everywhere in Paul's writing and also in John's too. 1 Corinthians 3, 11-12, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, of course, the context of that is, is starting churches. If you will read that in 1 Corinthians 3, Acts 20, verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, to build you up. 
Maybe that's a little metaphorical. Maybe that's not directly talking about a building, but the idea is there. 1 Timothy 3.15, the church and the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So the church is said to be a pillar in support of the truth. This, by the way, is not an argument for having church buildings today. I don't believe in church buildings. They're a complete waste of time and money, in my humble opinion. But the idea of the building metaphor, the temple metaphor, is used everywhere because it's a spiritual building that Christians are a part of now, that Christians are now. Second Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, or who are his and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. The foundation of God stands. There's a building metaphor again. Revelation 21.14, this is John now. In the wall of the city, that's the new Jerusalem, which stands for the new covenant, new Israel, the new church. The Church of Christ. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So building building is everywhere. And in when we get to Ephesians four verse sixteen we'll read this, which is a perfect building metaphor. From whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So you have to fit all these disparate parts together, the prophets, the teachers, the healers, the the, the people who work miracles and healings and the helpers and the administrators and the prophets and the teachers and the apostles and all the different gifts, the encouragers, the exhorters, the helpers, they all got to be fitted together. And when they're fitted, because they don't fit unless you work at fitting them together, it doesn't happen automatically. And every joint supplies something. That means every gift in the body of Christ supplies something that holds that building together. It holds together by proper working. The studs have got to work. The beams have got to work. The foundation stones have got to work. Everything's got to do its part. And then he switches his metaphor a little bit. He says, all of this causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. He switches from a building metaphor to a organic metaphor of growing. That's all right. Paul mixes his metaphors a lot. Jameson Foster Brown says, the growing emphasizes the fact that the church is an organism, not the mere increase of a building. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm now finished with Ephesians chapter 2. The main theme of which is the fact that Jesus, by dying on the cross, abolished the law. The law had caused enmity between Jew and Gentile. Now that enmity is gone, and Jew and Gentile are one in the one body of Christ. In chapter 3, which we'll do next, we're going to talk about the mystery of the gospel, which has been revealed. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 